0: Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point.
1: Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Xin. 16,000 reported cases in 75 different countries and territories so far. Monkeypox is the latest virus to be called a global health emergency of international concern by the World Health Organization, or WHO. This is the highest alert the organization can issue. Since this May, cases started emerging in countries where the disease is not endemic, sparking concerns over why the virus has been found in widely disparate geographical locations. How severe is the situation? Why are there different opinions on the WHO's classification and how concerned should we be? I'm pleased to be joined from Nanjing, East China by Professor Wu from the Center for Public Health Research of the Medical School at Nanjing University and from Washington, D.C. by Dr. Eric Ding, Chief of the COVID Task Force at uh, the World Health Network. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. So, Um, Professor Wu, let me go to you first. Here's what we know for now. As of July the 22nd, over 16,000 cases in 75 countries and territories and five people have died in Africa. That's according to the World Health Organization. And the virus is currently primarily spreading in Europe and 99% of reported cases are among males. So there is also a lot that we don't know. What is your assessment of the current situation and the WHO's decision to label monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern?
0: Well, the monkeypox was identified in 1958. and The first case was identified in human in 1970. So, uh this virus has been mainly endemic in some uh, african countries uh, mostly in the central and uh, uh, west african uh, uh, countries close to rainforest areas so it, it, it rarely spread all of those regions uh, this this time is quite different from all the previous uh, previous small outbreaks that uh, the, the virus landed in the area in various different countries, which are not uh, traditionally uh, found monkeypox. So uh, the other thing actually is quite dramatic is that uh, the number of infected cases shoots up very quickly. Because in all the previous infections, usually the case numbers are pretty small and uh, and it usually goes away pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, very rarely is that the virus spreading so uh, in a, such a large area and uh, a, a large population. Yeah. So that, uh, I think that's a very critical difference from all the previous cases.
1: Yeah, Eric, uh, what is your understanding of the WHO's uh, head? Uh, Director General's decision to call this a international public health event of uh, international concern. And how rare is it for, actually for two viruses or two diseases to be spreading at the same time around the world?
2: Yeah, I think it was a very good decision to declare the public health emergency. Although I would say it's a month much later than they should have. They first convened and tried to decide whether to declare in June. They did not. Um, my group had advocated. They had to urgently declare back in June. But late is better than never. And I'm glad Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the WHO, overruled his advisors who were kind of stalemated, and he he pushed forward with the declaration. And to put into perspective how incredible this uh, outbreak is, you know, over 30, 40 years, we've only tracked about 2,000 monkey pox cases worldwide. In just two months, we've tracked almost 20,000. Again, 2,000 in 30 years, 20,000 in, in just around two months. And this is an incredibly different virus than what was previously circulating. The new st- genomic st- studies of its DNA shows it is highly, highly mutated, than what what used to Hmm. be around. And so we should expect that it transmits in a much more dangerous way to
1: humans. And this is why the yeah.
2: Emergency is definitely needed.
1: Right. Let me come to that in just a moment. But you did mention the division among advisors. Basically, the WHO emergency committee did not reach a consensus on the decision. Uh, Professor Wu, as we know that uh, there are members actually it's reported that more members on the committee were reportedly against the decision to call it a uh, public health emergency of international concern than those who support it. And their opinion is reported that uh, the disease has caused very few deaths so far, as I said, five and it's not spreading among the general population, mostly uh, concentrated on on, uh, a specific group. And there were fears that uh, calling this disease a fake, which is the uh, public health emergency of international concern, could lead to stigmatization or further stigmatization of men who have sex with men, the gay group and so on and so forth. So, uh, Professor Wu, are these fears legitimate? How do you look at the division among the opinions, among the experts?
0: Well, if you look at the monkeypox, uh, usually it's quite uh, self-limiting in in adults. And uh, severe cases and death uh, usually happen in small children. And over the uh, previous uh, small-scale outbreaks, basically you don't need to have a, a medical intervention people, of course, the disease causes a very uncomfortable feeling, you know, a rash and the itchiness and also, you know, a, a little bit of fever, but usually it's not a life threatening. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the WHO's panel's opinion are divided on, on this issue. But the difference at this time is that seem to be there is a certain kind of uh, demographic Profile, which is quite different from the previous outbreaks, is mostly concentrated in, uh, in gay population men who have uh, sex with men. So apparently there is something different. And the other thing is that from the epidemiological point of view, uh, the spreading uh, is a lot of fast. As just uh, uh, Doctor Ding mentioned, that the genomic sequence that shows that there are a lot of mutations, which may facilitate this fast transmission. So, uh, I think from those uh, information. Um, it is a, a public health issue, but whether it's a need to be uh, international concern, I mean, uh, of course, this is something we need to uh, pay attention uh, but but you know because of the, the initial uh, population is mainly in a uh, man who have a sex with man and that, that actually if you if you uh, declare this disease as an uh, international concern then emergency then uh, it it could lead to a certain kind of a stigmatization if a, uh, this issue is stigmatized then that would prevent people to report and get get diagnostics so that actually uh, in the prevention the international approach
1: mm. but uh, the outbreak uh, eric the outbreak has mainly uh, as i said the cases um, mostly happened to men and actually the numbers show 98 per- percent of the cases have been men uh, gay sexual or bisexual people or men who have sex with men uh, but can anybody get it this is the first question and secondly mm-hmm what explains the fact that the virus mutated so dramatically over the recent years that it it become so so much more virulent and uh, spreading so fast
2: yeah these are really good questions i would point out that even though officially the numbers uh, look like 98 percent are men with sex with men that's very misleading well that's based on surveillance bias we're focusing our tests most aggressively in uh, gay LGBT populations. And so if you focus your test in that population and say, you in many countries, testing is very limited. If you only test those groups aggressively, naturally you're going to find that. But I want to point out, HIV used to be thought as a gay disease. It is not. It was heterosexual and and many people got it. And once HIV became global, you know, children got it and, uh, and people of all walks of life got it. So this... Stigmatization is dangerous, and also it's it's very biased if you just focus right now because of limited early testing. And, uh, you know, this there's a lot of heterosexual cases. There are 72 cases in children already, 23 of which are um, very young children. So right now, anybody can potentially get it. Obviously, you know, certain groups are still higher risk. But as the pandemic expands exponentially, as it's continued to exponentially grow, the spillover to high-risk children and immunocompromised people and pregnant women is very, very high. And again, um, and unlike COVID, which affected elderly the most, with monkeypox, the most high-risk groups are children under the age of eight, women and immunocompromised. So we should not just allow this virus to spread because ultimately it will reach um, the pregnant women and children. And that's who we're trying to protect by right now stopping the virus. And um, why did it evolve so much? Well, I think it, it's, it, first of all, previously we had uh, a lots of smallpox vaccine immunity, but as people, uh, um, you know, more, uh, fewer, fewer people are vaccinated, you know, and it has more room to grow, and the encroachment of people on animals, on the forests, um, basically has more human-to-animal contact as populations continue to grow, and this creates more spillover effects. And again, Just bad luck with mutations will allow the virus to adapt to humans and quickly spiral out of control. Mm. So this is similar to what happened with the SARS coronavirus, uh, as as we know. So we have to be vigilant on this. Again, stopping transmission now, early, will protect children later on who are the extra vulnerable.
1: Okay. Professor Wu, um, Chinese epidemiologist Wu zun from the Chinese CDC said on Monday that uh, it will not cause... The virus will not cause a mass infection in China, although there are two cases on Taiwan. He says it's only a matter of time for more cases to be spotted in other parts of China, although he said it will not spread widely. Do you agree with such assessment, given what uh, Eric just said now?
0: Based on the historical uh, transmission pattern, uh, monkeypox uh, will not cause large outbreaks. Uh, uh, you know, based on this point, I, I agree with him. Uh, but we need to be very careful with the new wave of the monkeypox spreading because, as Eric just mentioned, that the virus mutated. Whether that would uh, affect its transmission efficiency, we, we don't know yet. But uh, this is something actually we have to be highly alert because we don't want you know in the uh, Middle of the COVID-19, we have another outbreaks to deal with. So that, that's why the WHO declared this as an uh, emergency uh, issue. Uh, I think you know we have to be extremely careful and understand how the monkeypox was transmitted. It is transmitted mostly through the uh, contact and the body, uh, the body fluids from infected individuals and the open physical wounds. Uh, those are the way we know that the traditional transmission the the new, uh, um, uh, new transmission pattern seem to indicate that this virus may be uh, transmitted through sexual routes as well. So this is something actually I think for public health experts to keep a close eye on.
1: All right, we're going to keep a close watch on the situation. Many thanks to Eric Ding, Chief of the COVID Task Force at the World Health Network, and Professor Wu of the Center for Public Health Research of the Medical School at Nanjing University. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, heat waves are scorching cities and regions across the Northern Hemisphere this summer. Coincidence or part of an alarming trend in extreme weather? Stay with us.
0: Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point.
1: Soaring temperatures have scorched areas across the northern hemisphere and temperatures breached 40 degrees Celsius for the first time ever in some places. Hundreds, even thousands of people have died in Spain and Portugal mid-July alone. In China, almost 70 Chinese cities have issued heat warnings. What's causing these heat waves and how is climate change fueling extreme weather and what must be done? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Li Xiang associate professor of the institute of energy at peking university and from colorado in the united states by bob henson a meteorologist and journalist at yale climate connections and initiative of the yale center for environmental communication gentlemen welcome to the point so in july uh, temperatures in London, UK, Hamburg, Germany reached over 40 degrees Celsius and more than 90 million people in the United States are reportedly under various heat alerts for dangerously high temperatures on July the 25th, China renewed the orange alert for high temperatures. And according to the National Meteorological Center, temperatures in parts of southern and northwestern China may exceed forty degrees Celsius as well. Um, Professor Li, let me go to you first. What is causing these heat waves that are crossing that are across the globe, and how severe is the situation?
3: Uh, well, uh, first of all, thank, uh, thank you very much for for having me here. And uh, we all notice that in the recent days, not only China but also the north. Uh, hemisphere as a whole are enduring like they had high temperature and the global warming effect. I think the reasons behind this are twofold. One is the thermodynamic reason for global warming and the second one is about the large-scale atmospheric circulation which is from the atmospheric or the aerodynamic aspect. I think from the two aspects the global warming clearly from this point play a more important role in causing the north uh, hemisphere uh, for the temperature rise.
1: Mr. Hansen, according to the World Meteorological Organization, greenhouse gas emissions from human activities have heated the planet by about 1.2 Celsius since uh, pre-industrial times in the 18th century. How much have human activities contributed to this year's searing heat?
4: Well, that's an excellent question. And I think Dr. Lee pointed out very rightly that heat waves like this are both the product of a warming climate, worn by humans, and also by atmospheric circulation features. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of the extremes we've seen are greater than 1.2 C, right? In other words, someone might say, well, it's only warned 1.2 C over the last century. Well, the records established, for example, in London are more like 3 to 4 degrees C above prior records. Um, and that's the case in other parts of the world. Uh, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and the United States broke their all time records by three, four degrees C last year. So, uh, as the climate and planet warm a certain amount, you're going to have uh, particular locations and times, including heat waves, where the, the warming is even greater than that. So, uh, that's all the more reason why we need to take heat waves like this really seriously.
1: According to the Chinese National Climate Center, this summer's heat waves have affected more than half of the country and more than 900 million people. The center said many parts of China have experienced extreme hot weather since June. Um, So Dr. Li, how severe is the situation for China? How extraordinary this summer has been compared to previous patterns?
3: Uh, I would say compared to previous patterns this summer, shows a extremely long uh, e- a extremely uh, severe pattern as previous as before first of all uh, the global warming or the climate change in china not only uh, you know have uh, the severe rainfall but also in some of the, re- some, of the re- some of the regions some of the regions there is a large scale drought in the region so basically i think uh, the, the 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 influence first of all, is on the, uh, the three northern part of China, i.e. North China, Northeast China, and Northwest China. And there's a large rainfall in these regions, but at the same time, you know, uh, downstream of the Yangtze River, uh, there's a large scale drought and causing a lot of uh, severe damage in these regions. I'm thinking this could be a large uh, long-term effect not only affecting like June and July of this year, but also could last to uh, late August or even September. So overall, I think the damage for this climate change or global warming effect in China is going to be severe
1: animal rescue centers in the uk received a glut of cause for instance birds fell out of the sky and nature reserves burn experts fear that record-breaking temperatures could cause a uh, further collapse in insect numbers and uh, uh, with uh, bumblebees and butterflies among those most affected mr henson how will the heat waves or how are the heat waves impacting the ecosystem what other less visible impact do heat waves cause on the ecological system?
4: Well, interestingly enough, you know, heat waves obviously are going to affect um, animals and plants in in various and dramatic ways, especially all time heat like we've seen in several places this summer. I I think also we have to think about, when we think about global warming, the the times of year when we don't think of heat. Um, If we have winters where we don't have freezes in places that normally expect freezes, then you can have all kinds of pests and um, uh, non-native plants that might take root that otherwise might not have been able to establish themselves. So in some ways, I think even more about uh, particularly warm winters as being something that's going to affect ecosystems in ways that we might, might not prefer.
1: According to a report by World meteorological organization in May, there is a 50-50 chance of average global temperature reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next five years, and uh, scientists have found that nearly 1 billion people worldwide could swelter in more frequent, life-threatening heat waves at uh, 1.5 degree of uh, warming. Dr. Lee, have we have human beings or scientists been too optimistic about the level of global warming that we could we could see?
3: I'm thinking that. Uh, we are a little bit optimistic and the, rea- the reality is actually, you know, uh, the temperature rise or global warming is happening faster than we are expecting pre.
1: OK, let me go to uh, Mr. Henson for the same question. Yeah, unfortunately, there was a bit of a technical glitch. Mr. Henson, what is your take? Do you think this situation was beyond our expectations uh, a couple of years ago?
4: Well, I've always been a little concerned about the 1.5 degree C goal by 2030 because it, it, I, I think it was always a little bit of a stretch goal, and we approached it in some ways as a do-or-die goal. Um, and I worry that this, that sets people up to be extremely uh, pessimistic and even doomist if we don't hit it. Um, I, I think it's very possible we will warm more than 1.5 C by 2030. However, I don't think that's, that that all is lost. Um, Every degree of warming matters and every bit of warming that we can forestall matters. So, uh, you know, the less warming, the the better. And we have already managed to at least uh, uh, push off the most dramatic projections of warming from say 20 years ago. Uh, You know, global emissions were rising dramatically. The last 10 years, they've been rising much more uh, in a controlled fashion. Mm -hmm. And I can easily see the next decade being relatively flat. Hopefully some drop, and at least heading in the right direction. I guess I'm a worried optimist is how I would put myself on that.
1: Um, U.S. Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently said it is time for humanity to chart a new path of living in harmony with nature, urging the international community to match commitments with actions. What kind of actions do you think are most urgently needed or are amiss right now? And how big is the gap between our actions and our commitments? Is there a way to quantify that?
4: Um, is Dr. Lee back or is this. Uh, for would you like me to address
1: yes, that one? yes mr Hanson. Oh, okay
4: sure oh sure absolutely um you know there is a gap a huge gap uh, both in emissions and commitment and also uh, you know in addressing the the, uh, the peoples of the world who don't have the resources to adapt and, and to mitigate their own emissions and to develop in ways that don't uh, add to the emissions burden you No, know, uh, every country has a right to a, a healthy economy and we've got to find ways to transfer the technology uh, to countries all over the world so that they can uh, kind of leapfrog some of the the more uh, emissions, dangerous technologies. I think about telephones, how 30 or 40 years ago, um, the minority of the population of the globe had phones and they were mostly landlines. But we didn't wait for everybody in the world to get landlines. Um, We leapfrogged over that and people have cell phones now, almost universally. So I think solar panels, all kinds of alternative energy and renewable energy could be deployed a lot faster. I hope um, looking ahead, we can find ways to uh, facilitate that kind of uh, technology and resource transfer to make Mm -hmm. that possible.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I understand that Dr. Lee is back now. The UN Climate Change Conference, or COP27, is scheduled to convene in Egypt this November. Could these huge waves that we're seeing now prompt a greater sense of urgency and more ambitious national contributions? Uh,
3: Yes, for sure. I'm thinking that in the COP27, there's going to be a more severe and more uh, serious discussion on the climate change. And it seems like everybody, every country is aware of the fact of global warming and the damage caused by global warming. But I'm thinking the, uh, the biggest point is not like we're drawing a consensus on tackling climate change, but also we need to take solid actions on climate change. Like COP26 in Glasgow, China and the United States uh, jointly declare the Glasgow uh, Declaration on climate change, on coal phase out, and on the methane leakage. I'm thinking in the future, not only like declaration, but also solid actions in the future is going to be critical for the future co- global, global climate warming mitigation.
1: Unfortunately, we're seeing a not so nice or not so eco-friendly or climate-friendly combination of developments, right? On the one hand, you have uh, extreme heat waves. On the other hand, you have the tension, the geopolitical tension and the the pivoting back to more traditional forms of energy. Mr. Henson, how do you look at the way forward? Are we going to see more extreme weather, greater heat waves in the near future or um, things will cool down a little bit?
4: Um, I'm afraid, actually, on a global scale, we're seeing that cool down. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, we're in the third year of a La Nina. And during La Nina, there's more heat going into the oceans, less heat into the atmosphere. So this is not going to be a record year for global temperature. It's just hitting the northern hemisphere, especially hard with summer Mm -hmm. heat right now. Uh, I'm concerned that once we have our next La Nina, Probably in 2023, maybe 2024, that's when we will see global temperature spike over 1.5 C, most likely. So I don't see much prospect or hope or... uh, tempering these heat waves in the next few years. I think we have to adapt more readily. I uh, very hardened to see that in China uh, the five-year plan is calling for more green space in cities. Mm. Uh, that is an absolutely uh, fantastic step. we've got to get cities adapted to heat waves because uh, while we look at cutting emissions we also have to think about adapting yeah. you know it's okay. not a sign of failure to deal with that we mm-hmm. have to adapt.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. We're running out of time. Many thanks to Li Xiang, Associate Professor of Institute of Energy at Peking University, and uh, Bob Henson, Meteorologist and Journalist at uh, Yale Climate Connections. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.
3: Dunhuang situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, Passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang. The one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.